Welcome, everyone, to worship this morning. I welcome you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Before we go into our service, let me mention two things. Um, First is, if you haven't gotten a picture of your family for the uh, membership directory, uh, pictorial directory, please look at the bulletin and see the information there, because there's only two times that we have left where you can come and get your picture taken. So please do that. Uh, We would love to have that picture for that directory. And secondly, if you're a lady in this church, there are two announcements on the back. One about a weekly Bible study that's starting tomorrow, and then Day and Night Circle, which is resuming in September. So please uh, see the details about that so you can get involved. And our session is meeting tomorrow at 6 p.m. You can be praying for that as well. That is all I have to announce as we begin our worship service. Take a few moments to ask God to help lead you in worship by His Spirit. Let's do that now. I meant to mention that the youth are meeting tonight as well after the evening worship service in the youth room. Um, As we begin our worship service, our call to worship is from Psalm 33, verses 1 through 8. Would you please stand for our call to worship? God himself calls you to worship. We read, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Let's worship this mighty God who's created all things with him 115, all creatures of our God and King. Let's sing him 115.
Pray with me. God, you are worthy of our praise this morning. You put a new song in our hearts this morning and every morning. Your mercies are new every morning, and so we sing your praises, and we are so grateful that you have brought us here to worship you. Would you send your Holy Spirit to lead us, to fill us, to open our minds and our ears and our hearts to receive your word afresh this morning, to encourage us and to sharpen us and to grow your kingdom on this earth. And would you lead us now in the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. In your bulletin, you'll find the Confession of Faith, which is the Apostles' Creed. And I remember one pastor telling me that, in part, when we recite things as a church, we don't do it perfectly because we're an imperfect body of believers. And I love that as we recite it together imperfectly, uh, we are reminded uh, of God's mercy and his goodness to us. So as we make mistakes, don't be embarrassed. Just um, embrace that we are a body uh, and God is good to us. So in your bulletin, you'll find it, and I'll ask you now, believer, what is it that you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. like to lead us in corporate prayer, and I've taken several psalms um, as I have um, thought about this time of prayer, and so you'll hear words that are coming straight from Scripture, and I believe that's why God gave us the psalms, to help us to pray. We pray His words back to Him. Um, So would you join me as I lead us in prayer? Lord, you have searched each one of us, and you you know each one of us. You know when we sit down and when we rise up, you discern our thoughts from afar. You search out our path and are lying down and are acquainted with all of our ways. And even before, before a word is on our tongues, Lord, you know it all together. God, you hem each one of your people in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon them. And this knowledge is so wonderful that it's too wonderful for us. We can't even comprehend it, and yet we grasp some of it and we worship you because of it. God, indeed, you're gracious and merciful. You're slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You're good to all, and your mercy is over everything that you've made. And Lord, you tell us you're near to everyone who calls on you, to all who call on you in truth. And so, God, we call on you this morning by faith in the truth of your only begotten Son, Jesus. You fulfill the desires of those who fear you. You hear the cry of each one of your people, and you save them. And so, Lord Jesus, we bring our desires to you this morning, whatever they may be big and small, Lord, we pray that you would align our desires with your word, with your will, and that you would fulfill them. Some of us here are praying that you would 
take away temptation to sin. Some are praying for a new friend as school starts again. Some are praying to be closer to you. Some of us are praying for their marriage to be healed and to be strengthened. Some are praying that their loneliness would be removed. God, in all these things, we pray that you would fulfill them, that you would hear us and answer us. Bless your people, Lord. Show them your power and your mercy. We pray again that you would anoint the words of your son Heath and cause your word to stick in our hearts. And Lord, would you build this body up as we sit before your word and as you move in our hearts by your spirit. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Please pray with me. Lord, as we take up our tithes and offerings, we ask that you would bless them and we dedicate them to your service, that you would use them uh, to bless your people, to help those who are in need, um, to communicate the gospel uh, around the world. God, would you do all these things and would you continue to strengthen our hearts as we uh, have a desire to give? Would you strengthen that desire? Um, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll continue standing, and I invite you to sing with me. We'll continue worshiping with hymn 119, which is, I sing the almighty power of God. Let's sing hymn 119. Well, I'd invite you to turn with me now to the first chapter of the book of Genesis. We're going to begin today a series on the book of Genesis that I'm calling Reenchanting the World. Um, we take for granted that everything that exists uh, exists because an almighty, all-powerful God spoke it into existence. And I want us to think about this, this book of origins through the fall, probably into the Advent season. We will not cover every verse. We will not cover every chapter because that would take a tremendous amount of time. But we will be looking uh, at some major highlights from the book, starting today in the first chapter. But before I read it, let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word uh, we ask that you would bless this reading, bless this hearing, and bless the preaching of your word. Give us hearts to receive what you would say to us. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis 1, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And this ends the reading of God's Word. 
So Genesis is answering some of the big questions of life. Where did we come from? Where did all of this, where did creation come from? Why are we here? And I want to explore that question today through three points. I want to talk about word, worldview, and worship. Number one, word. So the text tells us that God made the world out of nothing. He said, let there be light, and there was light. He simply spoke. Romans 4.17 says, God gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. I like the King James's translation of that. It says, he calls the things that be not as though they are. In other words, God says light, and poof, it's as if light always existed. So the scientists and philosophers have been trying to figure out how things came into existence for millennia. And I credit Indy Wilson for this line of thought. But at one point, uh, they said that, or at least the theory was laid out, that everything was made out of earth, wind, and fire. But of course, you find out that earth, wind, and fire doesn't really tell you how you're supposed to live your life or answer any of the riddles of existence. At one point, some religious philosophers proposed that the world was propped up on the back of a turtle uh, that was on the back of a turtle that was on the back of a turtle. And in his book on the history of Western philosophy, uh, the atheist skeptic Bertrand Russell tells a story about a scientist questioning a woman who believed that the earth was resting on the back of a turtle. And the scientist says, well, what is the turtle standing on? And the famous answer that she gives is, it's turtles all the way down. (laughs) And you say, well, it's just silly, right? But there's been a novel written in the last few years called Turtles All the Way Down. And if you're a country music fan, you might know that Sturgill Simpson wrote a book called Turtles All the Way Down, or wrote a song, sorry, called Turtles All the Way Down. And it's the most depressing, miserable, nihilistic song I've ever heard in my life. And I know country music is sad. It's like I lost my wife, I lost my dog, I lost my house. But he ends that song with this line. Don't waste your mind on nursery rhymes or fairy tales of blood and wine. It's turtles all the way down the line. His point is, at the end of the day, life is meaningless. Who cares if it's a turtle on the back of a turtle on the back of a turtle? At the end of the day, we die and we're compost. We're fertilizer. This turtles all the way down idea summarizes a philosophical idea called infinite regress. And what that means is, if you keep going down, 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 trying to figure out a starting point, trying to figure out a foundation of why this world exists, it might as well be turtles because you can't find one. Nonetheless, modern science and philosophers keep trying. Uh, Modern science has told us that reality is ultimately at the foundation is made out of atoms. Like we get down to the atomic and subatomic level. And the atoms have protons, neutrons, and electrons. And now they're telling us that protons and electrons are made out of, you know, quarks and leptons. What is a quark, I ask you? It's a made-up word to describe something that no one's ever going to see. But they're saying it can't just be atoms at the bottom of things. There has to be more. We have to keep going down, down, down. And Nate Wilson says, we've all laughed at ancient civilizations that said the world is on the back of a turtle, on the back of a turtle, but we do the exact same thing. What is it made of? What's at the bottom of reality? What's holding it together? Eventually you go down, down, down. Whether it's a turtle, whether it's a quark, whether it's a lepton, whether it's something deeper that they come up with in 20 years. At the end of the day, they hit a wall. You just can't get farther. And there's a reason for that. And it's because this creation was made, as the theologians say, ex nihilo. It was made out of 
nothing. At the bottom of everything is nothing. More precisely, at the bottom of everything is speech. God spoke all of reality. He spoke all of creation into existence. And you could read Bible verses all day that back this idea up, but I'm going to read a few. Job 34, 14. If God should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. Job 37, 10. By the breath of God, ice is given, and the broad waters are frozen fast. Job 41.21 God's breath kindles coals, and a flame comes forth from his mouth. Hebrews 1.3 says that Christ is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. You know, the deists taught that God sort of wound up the universe like a clock and it just does its thing. And Christians can fall into that trap of just thinking, you know, all this is automatic. The sun rises because the sun rises and there's no other answer. But scripture says no. God spoke creation into existence and it still exists because he's upholding it by the word of his power. He's still speaking. If God stopped, this is a way of saying it, but if God stopped saying pew, you all fall on the floor. That's the idea of the book of Job. If God stops saying light, then everything goes dark. He's that actively and intimately involved. Not only in the initial creation, but in the upholding of the creation. I love the way G.K. Chesterton summarizes it in his book Orthodoxy. He says, Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit, fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning to the sun, Do it again! And every evening to the moon, do it again. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy. For we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. I love that. Creation exists because God keeps saying to the sun, to the moon, to the daisies, do it again. Do it again. This is a word-made world. That's point one, the word. Second, so how does this being a word-made world affect the way we look at the world, affect our worldview, as it's been called often? Well, the point of Genesis 1 and 2 is that God sets the terms for how we're meant to look at the world. Science is good when it is seeking to understand the world that God made, when it's not cut off from God. Scripture is setting the tone to say everything begins with God. In the beginning, God. It doesn't start with us. It doesn't start with the creation. It starts with God, and it's from Him that we're told how we're to view the world. We look at the world in light of the one who created it, and tells us how he created it. Well, how did he create it? He said, let there be light. And there was light. Gravity doesn't hold everything together. God holds everything together. The sun doesn't ultimately give us light. First and foremost, God gives us light. And we tend to think of the idea of having a worldview as being able to take a quiz and tick off a few boxes. Do you have a Christian worldview or not? I've, I've tired of the term to a degree over the years because I've re- it used to be you had either a secular worldview or a Christian worldview. And now with the inter- rise of the internet, there's so many worldviews, you can't count them all. Everybody seems to look at the world in a different way. And we think we can just tick off God is the creator. He created males and females. He sets the standard for marriage. He gives moral laws that we are to follow. That's all true, absolutely. But worldview is much more than that. 
So I read a book earlier this year that was just published in English, translated and published for the first time this year. It was written in 1928 by the Dutch Reformed theologian J.H. Bavink. And the book is called Personality and Worldview. I found it extremely helpful. And one of the big ideas of that book, and again, this is almost 100 years ago that it was written, is that the concept of worldview needed to be updated. Bavink says that what's more important than a worldview is a world vision. What does he mean by that? Well, a worldview is like having a map that helps you understand the world. And at the end of the day, only God can have a true worldview because only he can see everything. We don't have a full map. And so the editor of the book says, thinking is often an exercise in writing lists and agreeing to the contents of those lists. It arrives as a complete package and in some forms at least can apparently be acquired through a five-minute YouTube video. So what Eglinton, the editor, is saying there is, if you think worldview is something you can get by watching a five-minute YouTube video that says, here's what a Christian worldview looks like, then that worldview is deficient. It's much more complicated than that. Since we can't see the whole map, what Bovink says is that we need a compass. That's the most important thing that we can have. So we know what direction we're going, at least in life. And Bovink calls that a world vision. A worldview is the map. Only God has it fully. We're learning it as we live, as we study scripture, as we study creation even. But as we're learning that map, as we're mapping that territory, the most important thing, we can have a compass, and that's a world vision. So Genesis 1 tells us where we get that compass. God said, let there be light. It is the speech of God. It's God's word. That's our compass. That's our guide. But if you keep going down, 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 there's an even more foundational answer to what our compass is, to how we navigate this world. So if you look at the beginning of each of the Gospels in the New Testament, it's really easy to miss this. But they all riff off of the beginning of the book of Genesis. I'll show you why this is important in a minute. So Matthew 1.1, the beginning of the New Testament, says this. First words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Literally, in Greek, it's Biblos Genesios. That Genesios should sound familiar. It's the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. This is the new book of Genesis for the Creator who's coming into the world to create a new creation. Mark 1.1 says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That word beginning is the arche of the gospel. If you look at a Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the same word used in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now skip to Luke 1, 1 through 3. Luke writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to complete a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. As Genesis is an orderly account of creation, Luke sets out to write an orderly account of the gospel and the life and death and resurrection of Christ. And then finally, the beginning of the book of John, 1, 1 through 5, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. It's clearly building off of Genesis 1. John is saying, The word of God through which the world was created. And the word through which the world is being upheld. In some mysterious way that we may never understand till glory. Is the Lord Jesus Christ. The second person of the Trinity. He is the Logos. The word the one who created the world and the one through whom the world was created. And as such, he is our compass. You know, Logos, has a, John deliberately picked that word. It had a lot of philosophical baggage. 
But Logos gets down to what is the meaning of life, what holds everything together. And John's answer for that is, the one who created the world is the one who gives meaning and who holds it together. If you ask the question, why does something exist rather than nothing, what's at the bottom of everything? John's answer is, it's not turtles all the way down. It's Jesus all the way down. Colossians 1, 17 and 18 says that Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So if you want a compass, if you want something that will give your life direction, if you want something that will hold your life together when everything around you is shaking, Scripture is saying there's only one place. You can go down, down, down into any subject you want until you go down, down, down into the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will never find it. You may find turtles. You'll never find meaning. If you want a solid life, you need Jesus all the way down. That's the key to our world vision. That's the key to the way we look at the world. And lastly, what do you get when you get Jesus all the way down? Well, what you get is a life of worship. It always comes back to worship. We were made to worship. And you know, C.S. Lewis said, if we don't worship God, we'll worship celebrities, we'll worship athletes, we'll worship politicians, we'll worship stuff. But at the end of the day, life is about worship. And the scripture is calling us to worship the one who created us. Now, God doesn't give us the answer to every question that we have about existence. But what he does give us in Christ is a person who will be there with us while we're asking those questions. You get the word. You get the compass. You get a relationship with the creator. You get his guidance. One of the big subjects uh, that's in the news right now is artificial intelligence, AI. I don't know how much you're keeping up with this stuff, but it's pretty... Some people are scared to death about it and think we're living out the matrix or something like that. And some people are head over heels thinking we're heading into the, you know, the great utopia of the technopoly, as I like to call it. And one of the more popular uh, AI programs right now is ChatGPT. There are several of these programs you just ask it questions. You have conversations with it on your phone, on your computer, on your keyboard, and you, you converse. And I, I've had lots of fun and frustration experimenting with that. And, uh, well... My friend Jeremy Beck talked about this in a sermon last week, and he let me borrow his notes because I really liked what he said, so I'm going to share it with you. Late last year, ChatGPT went from zero users to 100 million in a month. ChatGPT version 4, which released in March, is 10 times smarter than version 3.5, which released in November of 2022. Version 4, the newest version, has the rough IQ of, of 155 in human terms. Uh, to kind of help you understand what that means, Einstein's IQ was 160. So it's almost as smart as Einstein. Technically speaking, a mentally non-functioning person's IQ is 65 to 70. The smartest person who ever lived had an IQ of 210. So Einstein is 2.3 times smarter than someone who can barely function in life. And the smartest man who ever lived is three times smarter than someone who can barely function in life. Researchers and developers are predicting that by 2045, so just a couple of decades, AI will be 1,000 times smarter than the smartest human being who ever lived measured by IQ. This is the difference between an ant and Einstein. AI will be so smart, the developers tell us, that when we don't know how to use it, we'll simply ask it, how do I use this program? The scariest thing I've heard about AI was from uh, Yuval Noah Harari, who teaches history at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. And... Uh, don't let that fool you. He's not a religious believer. He's uh, a non-believer. But this is a quote. He said, Science is replacing evolution by natural selection 
with evolution by intelligent design. Not the intelligent design of some god above the clouds, but our intelligent design and the intelligent design of our clouds. The IBM cloud, the Apple cloud, the Microsoft cloud. Science may enable life to break out into inorganic, the inorganic realm after four billion years of organic life shaped by natural selection. We are entering the realm of inorganic life created by intelligent design. When I first heard that, I was shocked a lightning bolt did not come out of the sky when he said it. Because what he's saying is th these natural philosophers and scientists are saying the earth is four billion years old and natural selection has been guiding the evolutionary process up until this point. And now humans have found a way to hack it so that we're now the ones who are going to take over the evolutionary process through intelligent design, as he said, but not the intelligent design of a God above the clouds. Our intelligent design. We get to design what the future looks like, and we get to do it by designing AI, which actually, at the end of the day, is going to be smarter than us. And if anybody's ever read fantasy novels or watched dystopian movies, I mentioned The Matrix earlier. It's like, I've, I've read that story before. I've seen this movie before. This plot does not end well, I'm thinking. It's like the Tower of Babel all over again. We think we're going to build AI that ascends up into the clouds. You know, Joy Davidman, C.S. Lewis's wife, she had a quote, I can't remember it exactly, but it was something like, it was probably no sooner than our ancestors created a slingshot that they rose up on their hind legs and said, we don't need you anymore, God. What was Satan's first temptation? We're going to look at it in the coming weeks. It was, you'll be like God. Eat from the tree. Rebel against God and you'll be like God. And that temptation is still happening. But there's hope in this. There's hope. I, I see hope. Jeremy said this and I say it too. I see hope in the, in, in the hope that people have in AI in some sense because at least people are acknowledging we don't have it all figured out. You know, that we, there are forms of life, even if they're inorganic, that are smarter than us. Boy, that's a start. And you know, the, the experts are saying that AI is going to become so intelligent and going to be give us give us be able to give us so many answers that people are going to constantly be asking it for guidance, for counsel. They're going to be asking it to help them run their lives. They're going to trust it more than they trust their doctors. Now think about this. AI can be smarter than humans, like Einstein compared to an ant. But above the clouds, Genesis 1 is telling us, there is a creator God who knows everything. We're less than ants in comparison to the knowledge that he has. And this creator God who knows everything, who created everything out of nothing, with simply the word of his power, he spoke and it existed. We can't fathom it. And think about this creator God who spoke everything into existence saying, I give you myself. I will be your compass. I will be your guide. If people are in awe of AI, if people are going to be asking AI what to do, how much more does it show the world we need something higher? We need the God who created the world. We need to trust Him. We need to be in awe of Him. We need to be seeking Him for guidance in life. We need to be asking Him what is this world that you've created. Here's what God the Creator demands from us. Hebrews 12, 28. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Reverence and awe. I love those words. Especially the word awe. We're going to talk about this more next week because as I was preparing I realized it's really another sermon. But I do want to close with thinking about this. I didn't think about it in time to get it into the service this week, but one of my favorite hymns was written by Isaac Watts, and it's called Jesus Shall Reign Where'er the Sun Doth Its Successive Journeys Run. And years ago, I heard an atheist mocking that hymn, mocking Psalm 19 that says, The sun leaves its chamber like a bridegroom. He says See, this is like a pre-Copernican way of looking at the world, that the sun was orbiting the earth. It was running. It was on a journey. 
And he says, that's ridiculous. It's Neanderthal. It's ancient. It's not scientific. And that always stuck in the back of my mind. Whenever we, I sang that hymn, I would think about that. And then uh, I was subscribed to some website that dealt with scientific discoveries. And a few years ago, there was an article about a phenomenon known as solar orbit. Science is always changing. Science is always changing. If, if you have a worldview, by the way, that thinks that we've got it figured out, um, you're wrong. <laughs> because we'll keep figuring out and figuring out and figuring out that we're wrong. Because what scientists found is that the earth is running, or that the sun is running a race. Now picture this. They tell us that the earth is orbiting the sun at approximately 67,000 miles per hour. We're moving right. Can you feel it? Are you dizzy? That's why we should be in awe. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. But the sun itself is orbiting the center of the Milky Way at approximately 476,000 miles per hour. So here's the sun, and here's the earth, and we're just flying through this immense creation that God has made. It gives new meaning to Jesus shall reign, where'er the sun doth its successive journeys run. So I asked ChatGPT to give me an analogy for how fast 476,000 miles per hour is. And here's what it said, and I quote. It's probably the first time you've heard a preacher quote this thing. But anyway. It says, imagine you're in a supercharged sports car, and you're driving at a constant speed of 476,000 miles per hour. If you were to drive around the Earth's equator at that speed, you could circle the entire planet approximately 19 times in just one hour. That's like zooming around the Earth's waistline multiple times before most people finish their morning coffee. In terms of interplanetary travel, if you were on a journey to the moon, which is about 238,855 miles away from Earth on average, you could reach the moon in just around 30 minutes at a speed of 476,000 miles per hour. That's faster than most daily commutes. Just think. Yeah. All this spinning. All this speed. And we're not even dizzy. We're not even falling down. But I propose that we should be falling down. That we should be falling down in worship. That we should be falling down in sheer awe and reverence and wonder at a God who so fearfully and wonderfully made this creation. And that's what I'm proposing for this series when I talk about re-enchanting the world. We need to look at the world with Christian eyes. And Christian eyes are the eyes of people whose heart is to stand with reverence and awe and worship before a creator God who sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the very hands that formed and fashioned this word-made world were nailed to a cross for us so that we could not only have a compass now, but so that we could have a compass for all of eternity, so that we could not only have a relationship with God now, but that we could have a relationship with God, our Creator, for all of eternity. This is a word-made world. Jesus is our vision our creator and our, comp our compass. Approach him and his world with awe. That's the big idea. G.K. Chesterton said, this world isn't starved for lack of wonders. It's starved for lack of wonder. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we stand amazed, we sit amazed, in the presence of one so mighty and powerful that you formed the galaxies simply with speech. You spoke and it came to pass. You spoke and it sprang into existence. And we're here at this very moment because it's your will and you're upholding the universe by the word of your power. Oh, Father, may we treasure your word. 
May we treasure the Lord Jesus Christ, the Logos. May we treasure the fact that we have a relationship. This one so powerful that we're less than ants before him, but you choose to call us sons and daughters. May we leave this place in awe, full of wonder, love, and praise, that the fairest Lord Jesus, who created us, also has chosen to redeem us. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing our closing hymn, which is hymn number 170. Number 170, Fairest Lord Jesus. He makes woeful hearts to sing. Now leave with God's blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all as we continue this, our short earthly pilgrimage. Amen.